You're listening to Live with the League, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League. All right. Well, I have uh, 12 o'clock by my clocks, so we'll get started. Hello, everybody. I am uh, Matt Bach, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications with the Michigan Municipal League, and you have uh, joined Live with the League, our uh, twice-monthly conversation with our Lansing team. Uh, we have uh, uh, most of our Lansing team on with us today. We also have a special guest, and we'll get started with him. Uh, we have Rick Hagland. Rick Hagland is a longtime reporter uh, throughout the state of Michigan. He worked, uh, when I worked at the Booth Papers uh, back in the day, he was a, a columnist, and he uh, also covered politics. He currently writes for the Michigan Advance uh, news publication on Lansing, in addition to freelancing, writing freelance articles for us for the Review Magazine. And we're having Rick on today to talk about his work and the most recent issue of our review magazine, which should be coming to your mailbox this week. Um, the focus of the issue is on uh, communities emerging from uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. And Rick has two articles in this uh, month's issue. So welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you uh, for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so you have a couple of articles. One uh, I think a lot of our communities would be interested in is as you talk to different communities all over the state about what they're uh, doing to help their local businesses emerge from the pandemic. What were some of the things you found in that and talk a little bit about that article? Well, there were um, quite a few communities that, uh, that uh, did things to help out businesses during uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, I probably didn't even come close to hitting all of them. It seems like just about everybody did something, but we focused on a few. Um, Alpena, for instance, in their downtown development authority, um, last in the last holiday season, um, sold about sixty thousand dollars worth of what they called downtown dollars that were gift certificates that could be used at local businesses, and they carried some discounts. Um, was a pretty successful promotion. In fact, even um, Alpena Community College, for instance, uh, bought some of these for their employees uh, is, is, is sort of a way to support the community. They also um, started doing something, um, I think it started in February uh, with a, a live Facebook event for their uh, local stores downtown. Um, this gave them an opportunity to kind of tell their story, showcase their businesses and, and sell goods. And it's been successful enough that they've decided to continue that even beyond uh, the pandemic. Uh, you had Muskegon, for instance, which is one community that really embraced the state's new social district uh, legislation that allows yeah. people to uh, buy alcoholic beverages in local bars and restaurants and wander around downtown uh, uh, enjoying themselves with their drinks. Uh, they closed off uh, a seven block, I think it was seven block length of Western Avenue, which is their main business district. Um, and they've got, I think about, the, uh, we're expecting about 16 businesses to participate in that this year. Um, Brighton uh, did something that they call their small towns, big hearts promotion, which where they use the patronicity uh, crowdfunding platform to connect donors and investors uh, who wanted to uh, invest in some, you know, local businesses that were struggling as a result of the pandemic. Um, I haven't checked lately, but when I was working on this as of about mid-March, they had about 825 uh, patrons participating. Uh, 
they invested more than $56,000 in about 25 local businesses in a, a local credit union there, Lake State Credit Union, matched contributions up to $750. Wow. Yeah, they, you did, you, like I said, you covered businesses all over the state. What impressed you or surprised you the most in that research you did for that article? Was there anything that really kind of jumped out at you? Well, I, I, I think the, the one thing that I thought was, was kind of interesting was uh, the city of Birmingham had kind of a double whammy. They, as, 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 the, as, the pand as COVID cases just started to hit the state, they had wrapped up a uh, contract to basically tear up the uh, uh, Maple, Maple Avenue or Maple Road, which is the main, one of the main downtown um, uh, shopping districts tore right. out the whole thing. So not only did they have uh, uh, coping with the pandemic, but you couldn't even get there um, for the most part. So they, I mean, they did, they probably had two, two dozen um, initiatives to basically help businesses. Um, wow. They suspended or they waived fees for things like uh, renewing your liquor license, uh, outdoor dining platforms they suspended their sign ordinance to allow um, for new temporary wayfinding signs to help people find their way around with the traffic patterns being um, being disrupted um, they gave up they're they're estimating that they're giving up I think close to a million dollars in um, parking structure revenue oh wow uh, they yeah. enacted free parking for for shoppers and for um, employee uh, permits. Um, and I think that ends in June, but um, they were probably one of the most aggressive uh, that I found in the state um, in terms of trying to, uh, you know, aid businesses, keep them from closing, kind of keep the economy going during a really difficult time. Right. You, you talked about the economic, you know, hardship, you know, there in Birmingham. And also your other article focused on the economic hardship being faced in the city of Hamtramck. And I know a lot of these communities, and we'll get into the, the latest on the American Rescue Plan dollars. A lot of these communities are, are, are desperate in need of that funding as an assistance that's coming. What was your, uh, what was your, your feeling you know, with the Hamtramck article? How did that one uh, come about? Um. Well, it was uh, 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 kind of some information that was given to me through through your office to, to take a look at them. They were a, a community that um, uh, apparently were were willing to talk about uh, what was going on there. And yeah, that's boy, a uh, that's a good. That's a good point. I'll, I'll give you a little quick backstory on that. What happened was is um, National League of Cities uh, had got contacted by NBC National News and they were looking to do a story on some communities that have been really facing some financial difficulties due to the pandemic. So we reached out to our members and and, and as, as you those listening might know, communities uh, have a hard time sometimes talking about the, the challenges they're faced with, even though we, we need that as far as uh, that's important to us when we're, when we're lobbying and Lansing in DC to tell uh, the lawmakers, you know, the kind of financial difficulties they're having. Um, so Hamtramck, to, to their credit, volunteered to do this NBC story. The story didn't end up happening. NBC found another city to do it. But that gave us an idea of like, hey, we should have Rick do a story about the financial hardship. So that's kind of the background on that I wanted to share. Okay. <laughs> Boy, poor Hamtramck. Um, they, they have gotten hit in so many ways. Um, 
uh, not just uh, because of COVID, I mean, it really predates a lot of that. They, they have been under emergency management twice in an 18 month period, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, it may have saved them from, from having to go bankrupt, but on the other hand, uh, it really left them ill-prepared to uh, serve the needs of their local residents and, and businesses. Uh, I mean, they're, they're just gutted in terms of uh, staff. Um, the city manager there, Kathy Anger, told me that uh, they have entire departments that now consist of just one or two people. And they, right. you know, they've outsourced some of their, some of their functions as well. Um, they took a big hit after the announced shutdown of the GM Detroit Hamtramck plant, 2018. Yeah. Um, and the tax revenues generated through that plant uh, contributed about a million dollars to their just a 14 million dollar budget. So I mean, their their biggest check chunk of tax revenue kind of disappeared. Uh, like other communities, they have some pretty serious pension funding issues. Um, and a number of kind of crazy things happened to them during the pandemic. Um, uh, they're one of the, obviously one of the cities that collects a, a city income tax, but mm. the uh, state law doesn't, does not allow cities to collect income tax on unemployment benefits. So they had all these people laid off from from GM and uh, and you know other businesses, uh, and uh, weren't able you know they weren't able to con connect any of the related tax revenue. Uh, Kathy also told me that another thing that had happened is when the state uh, issued a prohibition of of doing water shutoffs, people just simply stopped paying their utility bills. Uh, and it's a you have to understand. I mean, I think everybody probably knows this that pet. Uh, Hamtramck is a is a really low income community. Doesn't have a lot of resources, so that that really uh, that really hurt. Maybe yeah, I, I yeah, and I think that you know part of the reason of doing that story is you know that's just one story, one city story. But I'm sure maybe other cities could relate either parts or maybe all of those different things, challenges they were they were going through. So I think the importance of that story was to kind of show you that you're not alone in, in some of the difficulties that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Uh, they've been pretty much living off their fund balance. Uh, and uh, they've used up about two thirds of it in just the past couple of years. And if they if they keep going at that rate, it'll be gone in about two more years. Wow. But um, Kathy told me, you know, there's some optimism there. The GM uh, is retooling that plant to be the company's first uh, plant that'll produce only electric uh, vehicles. And oh, wow. So they'll, and they'll also be, they're hoping for some additional revenue sharing money um, and that uh, through the, uh, the American Rescue Plan, I think they get about $2 million um, out of that, which is, is pretty helpful when you've got it just a $14 million budget. So yeah, for sure. But I mean, the future is certainly not assured there. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thanks, Rick. And I said, uh, I understand you're working on an article for our next issue, which will be our July, August issue. And I know the theme of that issue is going to be um, housing issues and, and attainable housing and different things. And so you're working on a piece for that as well. Uh, that's right. It's going to focus on uh, the recent um, housing millages that were passed in Ann Arbor and in Kalamazoo County to um, kind of address uh, the affordable housing 
shortages in those communities. Okay. Well, good. Well, thank you, Rick. Always a pleasure to talk with you. I know you were on Dan's radio show on WJR a couple of times when we had that. So I appreciate it. You've always been a good supporter of the, the Michigan Municipal League. And we appreciate your work very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to uh, shift over to our Lansing team. Today, we have uh, Jennifer Richterink, uh, John Lamakia, and Harrison Richards with us. Uh, Chris will hopefully be joining us next time. Uh, he had uh, something he got called away on the last minute for today's show. So, but these uh, three can definitely handle any uh, questions that come our way. And if we don't know the answer, we will get back with you on the answer. So um, just kind of wanted to kick things off. Um, and we kind of have a question already somewhat related to this with, about the state budget. Um, so John, talk, talk us about what the latest is on the state budget and if you could uh, answer the one question there that was in the chat so far about uh, st uh, constitutional revenue sharing. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, happy to chat about those things and uh, was just pulling up a couple of numbers because I saw that question there and uh, just trying to make sure that, that we have an accurate response to that. So, you know, the budget process, as, as we deal with from a lobbying perspective, is really starting to heat up. Uh, but from a member perspective, I would still anticipate many, many changes uh, coming, and for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, obviously, we know that there's a huge influx of federal dollars about to hit the state. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of discussion and thought process around one-time spending for that and whether that happens all in the immediate uh, sort of fiscal year or if they stretch that out as, as the, the federal recovery plan allows for between now and the end of 2024. Uh, we have some thoughts on that. Uh, we've been having some active conversations both internally and externally with the administration and, and legislative leaders about how we think it, it would be appropriate to spend those dollars to best benefit our members from a direct standpoint and also from a leverage uh, and amplification standpoint, which we think is really important uh, in our ability uh, for the dollars we may be getting at the local level to take those and turn, let's say, $5 into $10 or $20 uh, as a way to leverage that uh, with, with state resources. You know, in addition to that, you know, the state does have to take care of the regular business. Uh, and so they've been tracking those numbers uh, very closely. And some of those, as we are all aware, impact us both from a constitutional revenue sharing standpoint and from a statutory revenue sharing standpoint. Uh, the, the budgets in both the House and Senate uh, were just getting kicked off here over the last uh, five to 10 days. And what we saw in the Senate was they maintained the 2% increase that the governor proposed on the statutory side. And the House uh, only kept a 1% increase on the statutory side. And what we've seen uh, on the constitutional side, and this I think gets at the question a little bit, yeah, go ahead and state the question too for those that can't yeah, see. Yeah, sorry, I, I will do that. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Um, so the question is, is that uh, that uh, state revenue sharing on the constitutional side uh, saw an increase uh, in the current payment that came out in April, and then are there new estimates for the rest of the year and next year, which is currently uh, as projected to be a reduction? So right now, that's the first that I've seen. Um, sort of that size of an increase and we don't think it's it's retro in any way and and so i got to dig into that a little bit more because the constitution is so prescriptive based on the increase uh or fluctuation of state sales tax so it's it's a not always a predictable number but it's a number that fluctuates and generally is pretty consistent but some of that increase may be due just to increased purchasing uh that has happened as of late you know there could be 
you know, excess money into the into the economy, obviously, as a result of a couple of different stimulus packages and things like that. And so we'll make sure that, that we figure that out and get an exact answer uh, on that. But that is the largest increase that I've seen on that side in any of the projections that have been out there. Yeah, the person writing said they thought it was a 15% increase. Is that what yeah. you're hearing or does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, I, you know, I, honestly, I don't I don't want to speculate on that just because it, it it to me is, like I said, the first I've seen that. I think what we have focused on um, here in, in both the current fiscal year is that the number has been relatively stable, if not increasing a little bit, simply yeah. because of, of those factors that we had talked about and the way in which maybe people's purchasing habits have changed as of late. Uh, but what we also know is we expect there to see a, a little bit of reduction coming into the next fiscal year. Uh, and both the Senate budget and the House budget reflected that reduction, uh, which is equal to about 2%. So again, something we're tracking really close, but you know, in, in all the years that I've been working on this, we've never had a situation where the economy uh, and the way in which constitutional revenue sharing relies on, on sales tax uh, happened in the shape and, and fashion that it has. So. Uh, while it may cause some inconsistencies uh, in the current or, or, or next fiscal year, we do expect that to stabilize as, as we come out of the pandemic. Okay. All right. Well, good. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the American Rescue Plan and, and the budget stuff at the federal level in, in a minute. But in the meantime, I did want to talk to Harrisana a little bit. Um, and then, Jen, Harrisana, you've been following a, uh, uh, some bills that are promoting community solar. I believe you wrote a blog about that. Uh, what's, what's, give us the latest on this topic. Yeah, so excited to talk about community solar. This has been a concept that's been very popular nationwide. It's something that we've talked about for a very long time throughout Michigan. Um, so the concept of community solar is establishing a solar array where different members of the community, residents, businesses, nonprofits can all opt in as subscribers. And for all of the energy that's gained from that from that um, facility, they'll then be able to get that as a credit on their bill uh, as part of their share. So it's really awesome in thinking about ways that we can expand access to renewable energy. It's beneficial for individuals who want to opt into a clean energy option, but they may live in a rental property, which doesn't have the ability for them to have their own solar panels, or if it's you know cost and effective for them to do it on their own personal property, it increases accessibility and also options for us to really see a more green and resilient future. So we saw legislation this week that was introduced by partisan legislation, one bill from, uh, well, House Bill 4715 from Representative Hood and House Bill 4716 from Representative Poitinga. Uh, and the bills look really awesome, except for one concern that we have, uh, and we found out that this was simply an oversight, that in the broader act that includes all electric utilities, uh, it also includes municipal utilities, and that was not defined in the new legislation. So we've had a conversation with the bill sponsor about that issue. They obviously want to ensure that municipal utilities can opt out as well as co-ops, because our municipal utilities, as most folks know, are governed locally as opposed to the regulated utilities that are governed by the MPSC. This proposes a conflict because the broader process of community solar is going to be established by the Public Service Commission. And so we just wanna make sure that our utilities at the from the municipal standpoint, excuse me, are able to govern and establish that process as they need so that they can fully adapt to a process that makes sense for them and their residents. But overall, we're excited to see this come forward. Um, it's likely it's gonna be a continuing conversation as we approach an energy rewrite in the next couple of years, but it's really cool to see the engagement and support that we have so far, both from our membership and throughout the community. 
Yeah. Now, is it is it going to have support on both sides of the aisle so that I can actually see the light of day and, and pun as intended on that a little bit? Because <laughs> there is a robust number of co-sponsors. And we, like I mentioned, Representative Hood um, from the Grand Rapids area is representing that as well as Representative Poitinga. Um, and so we're, we're ex excited to see the collaboration and the consideration that this is something that can really take Michigan into a new generation of optimization, both through energy and economics as well. Okay, good, thank you. Uh, Jen, you're also following a package of bills that have, comes up every every term, <laughs> new package of bills regarding short-term rentals. Um, this one, uh, we've done a lot of work on this in the past, but this one is not, uh, does, isn't really reflective of a lot of the work we've done in the past on this, is it? No, um, to be blunt, Matt, I can say that when we're not talking about marijuana. Um, it's the same garbage bill that we've been dealing with since, you know, late 2017, 2018. Oh, wow. um, it's the a single preemption bill um, that says um, short-term rentals, uh, which is a lease less than uh, 30 consecutive days. Um, been 28 days in the past um, and then it was changed to less than 30 days so in this one it says less than 30 days um, is a by right permitted use in any residential zone cannot be um, subjected to any procedure different than any other dwelling in that zone it cannot be a commercial use um, and just by um, the nature of residential property communities do not, unless there is a, maybe a blight issue, do not inspect owner-occupied residential. So right there, you have a huge issue by saying that you cannot treat a short-term rental any differently than any other dwelling in that residential district or zone. Um, so we are urging our members to please reach out um, to the bill um, to the bill sponsor and co-sponsors. Um, I've, I've been contacted by some of our members who um, were not happy to see maybe their new representative as a co-sponsor on this bill. And um, I encouraging our members to reach out to those individuals. Maybe they signed on to something not knowing the background um, of it um, or uh, understanding the issue completely. So um, reach out, help educate them on this issue. And, you know, again, I probably sound like a broken record, but for those uh, members, communities that are not dealing with vacation rental issues, this has a huge impact just on zoning, local decision-making in general. Um, because if this one goes through, then what's next? Occupancy limits, um, all kinds of things. Other special interest groups are going to want a, um, want a preemption and they'll point to this one um, as a reason that they should be um, treated differently as well. We did get a question here that says, I have already reached out to my representatives. Who else should I reach out to? Is there a committee or something we should direct some of these to? Yes. So this bill um, has been uh, referred to the House Commerce and Tourism Committee this time around. Um, so it's not in local government like it has in the past. Uh, we at the League have reached out to that committee chair as well, um, and I have a meeting set up this week because we are looking um, to see how quickly um, what the time frame is on this bill possibly. The bill number is 4722, House okay. Bill 4722. Um, I saw a couple of people in the chat. We also, I did a blog 
um, that we can put here in the chat. And I would encourage folks, if you're not signed up for our Inside 208 blog um, too, especially if you're interested in this issue, um, this is where I post most of the information um, to keep people up to date with what's going on. Yeah. And you got, I mean, I know you'll probably be more politically correct than I will be, but you got to be pretty frustrated because you've done a lot of work on these in the past where you got it to a place where, where we're pretty close, you know, we had some, you know, trying to find something uh, where, where communities can, you know, have still have some choice. Um, and just to see this kind of all that work just thrown out the window and, and brought like this, it's got to be frustrating. Yeah, I mean, we acknowledged three, four years ago, we knew this issue was not going away. And so every time we've sat down at that table to negotiate, we have been there in good faith, coming up with uh, solutions that we know won't make all of our members happy, but at least will get us to a point um, that, you know, that, that's all negotiating, a little give and take, trying to find a middle ground. And we have shown up time and time again doing that. Um, and to see the exact same bill introduced um, with with no discussion ahead of time, no heads up that the bill is coming. Yeah, it's very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I bet. All right, well, uh, see, I don't think we got any more questions. Just a couple comments from that about uh, the people who contacted there. Well, here's one. Um, uh, I think it's a question. We tweak the ordinances that require new occupancy permits each time a new occupant comes in, I assume, seems to work around the issue because of the cost to the owner is being prohibitive in the long run. You know, you know what that was, what that comment is about, Jen? Uh, I'm trying to look for that one. <laughs> we tweaked. So I, that that is great if that is working for that community. I think though, if this bill were to go through, what it's saying is that you wouldn't be able to do that unless you are requiring all um, of the dwellings in that district to do the exact same thing. Um, so that's just one, one thing to keep in mind because we have um, local ordinances across the state that we can point to that are working very well, especially in the argument of someone who's just renting their home or second home out a couple of times a year to help pay for property taxes or you know the property upkeep and maintenance costs. Um, there's communities across our state allowing that. It's really about these investment properties that are overtaking some of the neighborhoods. And now you have an unbalanced district um, where you know you have way too many renters, um, vacation renters. Uh, and we've already acknowledged our state is struggling with a housing crisis right now when it comes to being able to get in attainable housing the affordability and accessibility factors, this just further strains that. Um, workforce housing is a huge issue across our state and especially in those places where they are experiencing um, high visitors because of vacation and desirable spots to go. I go to those spots um, outside of a pandemic, but you know we all wanna visit those places, but you still have to have that healthy balance. I mean, we need homes for people to work in that area, for families to have kids in the school system. So there has to be a balance. Right. Okay, well, good. Well, I know you'll keep uh, keep us up to date on that, and we'll probably talk about it at future shows, and we'll, you'll do regular blogs uh, letting people know. So make sure you guys, uh, those watching, uh, subscribe to uh, Inside 208, and you'll get uh, real-time uh, updates every time there's a new book blog posted on, on the short-term mental issue and other issues. One of the big issues I know you're all very interested in, I'll talk about now, is the American Rescue Plan. 
Um, we already got a couple questions uh, from people about when the guidelines are going to happen. Uh, we do believe uh, from guidance from the National League of Cities that they do need to be by law drop the guidelines by May 10th. So we're getting close. It could be any day now. Uh, the league is preparing uh, webinars and, and other things that once we get the guidelines and have time to digest them, we're, we're planning a lot of outreach to our members, emails, uh, like I said, webinars, sessions, uh, information, to probably talking points at, at some point as well to give you all that information. And John, one of the questions that's already come in uh, that we've had a few times before is uh, what about the villages? We know in the list that we've seen as far as how much communities are estimated to get the villages in Michigan were not included. And someone posted, well, we were told by our county commission that the villages are gonna get nothing. And I'm pretty sure that's not true. So I'll let you start off with that and then tell, talk us what else is the latest on that issue. Yeah, so, so that is absolutely not true. Um, you know, we, we are, are confident uh, based on everything that we've done and <clears throat> all the work that we've put in on this. When they say every municipality, both in Michigan and across the country, will be receiving an allocation uh, from the American Rescue Plan, that that will happen. Um, just the way in which the estimates came out, it did not reflect that. That is simply due to the data that the, the congressional budget offices and those that are working outside of the Treasury Department when they put together the original estimates uh, had a limited data set in which to work with. There are many different types of municipalities all across the country, and they did the best they could to incorporate that, but there were some, some data that they didn't have access to that prevented it from being a completely uh, accurate and, and 100% um, you know, sort of identifiable list for every municipality in the state of Michigan. So with that being said, very simple answer is yes, villages will be receiving an allocation. Uh, Matt, to your question about you know guidance and and when those estimates will be out, you know we we are up against the clock, uh, or, or I shouldn't say we, but Treasury is up against the clock to have those out in the next week. Uh, we fully anticipate that they will be meeting that deadline. And like you said, Matt, I think the the most critical component here is is that none of us will have eyes on it until all of us have eyes on it. And so it's going to take uh, it's going to take us a couple of minutes, uh, and by that maybe uh, a couple of hours, maybe even a, a day or two to to really digest that, make sure that we can get you uh, the proper information, and that we can work with our partners as we have been to make sure that the information you do get is accurate and relevant, um, not only to to your communities, but hopefully, as as you heard me talk about earlier your thought process and how we leverage these dollars, right? So that gets back to the patient argument that we've been making here over the, the last few weeks and months about this is that there's plenty of time in which to spend this money. It does not have to be rushed out the door on day one. Uh, and, and making sure that we think about that and understanding that there could very likely be other opportunities coming forward to leverage those dollars based on how the state decides to spend theirs uh, is going to be incredibly important to the way in which you plan and think about this from a transformational standpoint. So we encourage you to do that. And obviously, from our perspective, you've heard me say it uh, time and time again, as we have that information, we will provide it. And as soon as we are, are into the details on that and know uh, all of the facts and figures behind it, you will get uh, an explanation from us in conjunction with probably many of our partners. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, I, I know I am, right? I'm just kind of sitting, waiting for the email to come from Treasury with all of right. those uh, 
all of those details, but it will be here sooner rather than later that much. Yeah, we're def definitely in hurry up and wait mode right now. And I, and I guess some advice as a former reporter uh, for a lot of our people watching today is like, you're going to probably get, as soon as those guidelines hit, you're going to get a call from the media, your local media saying, so now that we know you can't spend it, you know, whatever the media interprets the guidelines, they're going to call you and ask you, so what are you going to do? Um, and the simplest answer is, you know, we need time to digest these uh, guidelines. So it's one. And two, you know, we don't have to spend this money till the end of 2024. So we have time to thoughtfully and deliberately go through these uh, guidelines and, and figure out what's best for our community. So that's really your simple answer. Um, you know, I know the media is probably going to try to pin you down to get to say something, but uh, we will be putting talking points out that basically say that, you know, you have time. There's no need to rush into this. I know some communities I've seen on Facebook are taking polls, like what areas uh, that their that their followers on their Facebook page would are interested in. Uh, that might be a good way to kind of start gauging uh, community involvement. I know uh, other communities have started uh, like uh, focus groups or, or just like community meetings where they're kind of talking about this stuff. So uh, there's a, all all different approaches out there, isn't there, John? There is, uh, with, without question. Um, you know, and, and we recognize that each community is unique with, with many different needs, uh, but at the same time, we're all facing similar problems too. So whether that be things from infrastructure to reactivating, you know, our parks and rec programs to just being able to, to invest in those quality of life uh, type programs that make our communities truly what they are. Uh, we're hoping that again, as I said, there'll be ample opportunity in which to digest um, the guidance that comes out. There'll be ample of time in which to spend it. We know that. And then hopefully programs in which to leverage those dollars. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get into your questions. Uh, we have a few questions coming in. And uh, when we do that, uh, I did want to mention we do have a couple upcoming events. Our Upper Peninsula Education Summit is May 13th. You can register for that on our website, mml.org. And also the Community Excellence Award deadlines is coming up, that's May 14th. Um, if you have an outstanding project or something innovative that you've done uh, during COVID or even uh, separate from COVID, uh, we'd love to have your entries. I think we got five or six already, which with uh, two weeks to go to the deadline, that's really good. So it's very encouraging. I think the most entries we ever got in a single year was 19. I don't know if we'll come close to that or not, but the fact that we already have five or six, that might be a good sign that we're going to have a lot of really good competition this year. So looking forward to that. Hey, Matt. Um, yeah, go ahead, Matt. John. You're breaking up just a touch. So okay. uh, I got your notes. So how about I, I help you out here yep. for a second All right, um, go ahead. <laughs> and then get into a couple of questions too, because I know the next thing Matt's going to want to remind you of, of is our next live with the league, um, which is gonna be May 17th. Uh, and then the following one happens to fall on Memorial Day. So we'll be switching that to Tuesday, uh, June 1st. Uh, so everybody can still have an opportunity to tune in. We know it's gonna be a busy time with budgets coming up and things like that. And I do wanna make sure I, I offer just a, a, a clarifying point to a comment I made earlier as I, I check myself here on context, which we do with lobbyists sometimes and the constitutional revenue sharing piece, only because I had mentioned that that we might see a reduction uh, and without context, that might sound like a cut to some of our members uh, that are listening today, which is not true. Um, they base next fiscal year's constitutional revenue sharing numbers off of the consensus revenue estimating conferences that take place a few times a year. So the, the January conference had suggested that there will be a $24 million increase over the current fiscal year. So there will actually be more dollars coming in. The most recent budget recognized that there will still be an increase. It will just be a slightly smaller increase. So 
Well, constitutional revenue sharing is showing the same general projections of a gradual increase over time. It's just slightly less than what the original projection would have been at the beginning of this year. And again, we attribute that really to some of the buying power and spending habits that have been uh, at people's disposal due to some of the stimulus dollars in the economy. And as, as we come out of the pandemic, that will change some of that and adjust some of those numbers. Uh, one of the other questions that I saw in here uh, came in uh, on any insight from the governor's office or MDHS on when there might be some loosening of, of outdoor gathering restrictions or contract tracing requirements as we look forward to summer festivals, uh, 4th of July celebrations, et cetera. Um, this is actually a really important question and, and I think something that you know, we were planning to discuss here. Uh, the governor just last week, and, and I got it in front of me, so I'll do my best to make sure I can can read this uh, at the same time, but but really, she re released her uh, Michigan back to normal as a as a play on words, and really a, a metric based step in which she sees a loosening and uh, and and uh, a loosening of the restrictions that are out there based on the number of people that are vaccinated on a percentage basis. So we know that you know the herd immunity general thought process on this is to get people to 70% uh, vaccinated. Uh, right now, we just crossed 50% uh, of people vaccinated or at least with their first shot uh, just over the weekend. And then she instituted um, four different benchmarks. So one at 55%, 60%, 65%, and then 70%. Uh, and as you meet those percentage-based benchmarks, then restrictions will loosen uh, 14 days after that benchmark is restricted. So in the first step, if we reach 55%, which the governor has predicted that we may do so by the end of this week or early next week at the latest, would be to lift the state's requirement for employees to require remote work when feasible. In step two, which is at 60%, and I should say that really puts us then sort of around the end of May for people getting back into you know, the office if desired. As we get into the 60% threshold, uh, they're going to increase capacity at all sports stadiums to 25%, uh, increase indoor capacity at conference centers, banquet halls, or for funeral homes to 25%, and increase capacity in exercise facilities uh, and gyms to 50%, uh, lift the curfew on bars and restaurants. And then at 65%, and I think this is really uh, getting at the heart of the question, uh, we'll lift all uh, indoor percentage capacity limits uh, requiring only social distancing between parties uh, and relax uh, current limits on residential social gatherings. Um, and that'll get into some of the outdoor activities as well. And then as we get to 70%, that is really when we lift uh, the majority of, of all uh, restrictions, including uh, the, the mask order. Um, you know, all with the Sort of the, the asterisk that says, hey, if we find another variant or we have things that, that increase dramatically, uh, she'll reserve the right to take additional action. Uh, but, yeah. you know, so that, that sort of lays it out. Uh, I know that's a lot of, of talk, but that is uh, some pretty important information and, and something that is a new metric-based system that did not exist or wasn't currently in place uh, right. prior to just last week. Okay, good. Thanks for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> Oh, so the question was, what percentage are already vaccinated? And I think you mentioned, John, that it was about 50% over the weekend when you hit that mark, at least one shot. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're at 50% at with one and, and just short of 40% uh, with two. And then as we look at, at population groups, too, 
you know, those that, that fit into the category of, of 65 or older, about two of every three individuals have gotten that. Uh, and then as you look in the, the demographic younger than that, about one in every three, and that would be consistent with the way in which the vaccine program was rolled out uh, and the way in which we vaccinated those that were uh, most at risk first, uh, followed by those that, that were least at risk or, or less risk than that particular population category. Yeah, and there was a, a good question just came up. What happens if we don't get to the 65 or 70% dials? What happens then? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the biggest question, and, and honestly, probably the biggest question that was asked by legislators uh, as these were rolled out. So while it received a lot of positive praise and, and, and talk over the weekend and, and late last week, there still is that unknown as to what happens if we don't get there. I think the general consensus is right now is let's still focus on getting people vaccinated, and, and as long as we continue to do that. And I know, uh, you know, we've talked about it organizationally, others have talked about it, and there will be continued, you know, discussion out of the administration and, and their partners. Um, but if we continue to see uh, the numbers rise in the way they, they will, we may, but if it plateaus, there's going to be have to be some openness to an additional conversation, which we fully expect to happen. Okay. All right. Um, uh, kind of now they're talking about metrics on the chat. Uh, let's see, why are we counting those who have been infected for the immunity metric. Seems like we should be close if we add in those numbers. So I, I think the, 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 the claim there is if you already had COVID, then you're immune. And I don't know if that's necessarily been proven one way or the other. Yeah, well, I will I'll I will promise this. Uh, while I, I've been fortunate enough to be on the Governor's Protect Mission Commission and have a lot of access to some of the data, I am I still am not Dr. Lamakia. I'm just uh, just a, a lobbyist. And, you only play and, one on TV. You know, I can't I can't speculate on that. I, you know, I, I do have to put some trust and some faith in, in those that that actually study this and pay attention to it to develop it. And and so far, um, you know, it, it it's at least been informational in terms of of what we've been able to gather. Uh, and then we have to do our best to to continue to try to push forward and, and push on to to get to that number as best we can. Okay. And then uh, someone said, are are the metrics being measured by at the county level, or is it, are restrictions lifted based on county metrics? And it doesn't sound like it, right, John? Yeah. So there's no question that that there is data county by county, right? And and that's actually all publicly available. But in terms of the way in which uh, we actually are measuring this, it is it is in the aggregate and for the state uh, to get to that 70% threshold. You know, what, what I would say, and, and this is just sort of my thought process around it and paying attention to this conversation is that there is some potential in which for us to look at um, maybe a county by county system as, as we start to, to move forward in this, particularly if we get into that plateau situation. But right now we are at a statewide metric in terms of the way in which we measure this. All right, thank you. So uh, let's wrap up. Um, any other questions that I didn't get to, uh, Betsy or anyone? Nope, I think you've covered everything. All right, good. So Matt, there's, there's one other question in here that I wanna just make sure um, I address just so there, there's no confusion on this. The, the metric is measured off the first shot that's given, right? Uh, and and so as, as, as much as, and, and again, this is, is um, uh, how do I want to say it? Not not medical advice, so to speak. I mean, the idea is still to make sure we get you know two shots in everybody's arm uh, to get full efficacy. But the way in which uh, the measurement for the relaxing and, and loosening of restrictions is being put in place is by the measurement of the first shot. And, and so that's why we are at 50% today uh, in terms of, of where we're measured 
although only about 40% of the population has received both shots. And those metrics as they go up will be will be measured based off of first shot in arm, not second shot in arm. Okay, good. Well, thank you. All right. Well, that should uh, uh, be the show today. I appreciate everybody's interest and time. We had a great, great attendance today. So I appreciate that very much. Our next one will be May 17th. And I did want to note, John probably said this, but I did want to note that our show after that would normally be May 30th, but that is Memorial Day. So we're going to move that one to Tuesday, June 1st. So just kind of note that for your calendars. But once again, thank you, Harris Island, Jen, John, and, and Rick Hagelin. Thank you for joining us, being our special guest today. So until next time, everyone, thank you. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mnl.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.